Thank you, Gary. You know, it's good to posture ourselves before God from time to time. Well, good morning and welcome for those of you who are here, those of you who are joining online. You're probably a little warmer and drier if you're watching online this morning, but uh, again, we're very happy you're here today. It seems that confidence and faith in the judicial branch of government has hit an all-time low. About 2015, it was noted that America's trust in our top judges has fallen, and it's only gone down since then. Uh, it looks like the judicial branch of, uh, branch of judgment dropped eight points in the last year, as many Americans saw them making decisions that they deemed to be controversial or, as they described it, just plain wrong. There was a significant loss of trust, with only 53% of Americans saying that they have a great deal or even a fair amount of trust in this branch of the government. <clears throat> this is important. Because, see, as Americans, honestly, just as people, we crave justice. And the only way we can have justice is if we have good judges who are upholding the Constitution. As a matter of fact, democracy depends on the ability of our judges to hold up the Constitution. The only way we can get that is if we have judges that we trust. But then again, when it comes to someone judging our actions, we're not sure we want such a good judge. And as Americans consider the judgment of God, they get so uncomfortable that they try to craft their own God, according to a book called America's Four Gods. Americans differ widely from one another on two key areas about belief in God, the level of God's engagement in our world, and secondly, the extent of God's judgment of evildoers. In other words, is God actively and meticulously engaged in life day to day here in America and everywhere else in the world? Or is he remote and is he distant and uncaring? And secondly, does God judge wrongdoers in this life or does God express wrath towards people and nations in the age to come? Or is God only kind, forgiving, and helpful to people in need? So these four gods have arisen. One is the authoritative God. And this is a God who's very involved in the world to help people and does judge evildoers in this life. And even though he's still seen as a loving father and a, and a caring being, and authorities, or the author's research shows that 31% of Americans have this view of God. That's not quite a third. The second is the benevolent God. He's very involved in the world as we need help doesn't feel anger toward evildoers, and doesn't judge anyone. 24% of Americans have this understanding of God. And then there's the critical God, who does not involve himself in the affairs of this world or its people, but he does take careful note of how people live and will judge them in the afterlife, holding them to account for evils done. This is about 16% of people. And then last is the distant God, which is exactly as it sounds, a cosmic force or higher power. This God created everything, but is no longer engaged with the world and does not judge its inhabitants. And 24% of Americans believe in that God. So we've come up with these different gods. 
as we struggle with how God judges. And after describing these four beliefs about God, the authors of that book explore at length how these beliefs impact our beliefs and values about morality, society, science, money, possessions, evil, warfare, and culture wars. Now, all of this stems from a negative view of God's judgment. And I think if we're going to be honest, many of us may feel that way. We don't quite get how to reconcile a God who is a God of judgment with a good and loving God. So what I want to talk about this morning is how can I view God's judgments positively? How can I view God's judgments positively? We're going to see God's judgment in the passage we're about to look at today. It comes from 1 Samuel chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 22. 1 Samuel 4 verses 12 through 22. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. 1 Samuel chapter 4 verses 12 through 22. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her, said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God has been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. You may be seated. We're continuing this morning through the book of 1 Samuel, a group of people, God's people, who had been involved in a conquest, getting rid of people to gain the promised land that God had promised to them. But by the time we get to the end of the book of Judges, it says there were people who did what was right in their own eyes because Israel had no king. So these are people in transition. They're going to get their king, but all the time they've got these kings they're going to be struggling with whether to put their faith in that king or whether to put their faith in God. And it's a struggle that we still have today. Who will we ultimately put our faith in? A government and its abilities or our God? Now, this morning, I want to talk about that subject. How do we look positively at God's judgments? And I want to look at the 
the subject this way. We'll go through the passage and first of all see that God is faithful to his word. Everything that has been prophesied about has come to pass now. The death of the two sons of Eli, Eli himself, and even you see the daughter-in-law died during childbirth. And we'll see that God, he is faithful to his word. Then we'll see that God judges through abandonment. You saw the ark of the God, that the, the ark of God has been taken away. And the Israelites are not sure what to do with this. And then finally we'll talk about how can I view God's judgments positively. We'll look at four positives that come from God's judgment and how we view it. So let's then talk about this first part, that, that God is faithful to his word. If we look back at those verses, all that had been revealed now has come to pass. A runner came back from the battle talking about what's happened. We saw it there in verse 12. It said his, he had dust on his head and his clothes were torn. This was a sign of grief. People would put dust on their head as if to say, I wish I, wish I was in the grave I, because I'd be better off than I am right now. Clothes were torn. Eli was sitting by the side of the road. He was waiting on a report. Now, interestingly, his main concern, he had two sons that were in the battle. But his main concern was not about his two sons. His primary, his primary responsibility was the ark. That's what he was waiting to hear about. Then he gets, this, he, he gets this fourfold bad news. Israel has fled. The army suffered heavy losses. Your two sons are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. Then upon hearing that news, we get to verse 18. It says, as soon as he mentioned what? Not the sons. Not Israel's heavy losses. The ark of God. He fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate. And his neck was broken and he died for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. When the text says that he was heavy, this is actually a play on words. The Hebrew word for heavy is kavad. And it can mean glory. You may have heard of the, the book, The Weight of Glory. Glory has this idea of heaviness, that you can feel presence. But it can also mean heavy in the sense of being physically heavy. It seems that Eli, who was also stealing portions of the sacrifice that he wasn't supposed to, had gotten heavy on it. So he was physically heavy from that. He was heavy and burdened in the sense of the sins of his family. And now he'd become a heavy burden to Israel. So there's all of this heaviness that's going on here in this passage. And God's word has now come to fulfillment. And God's word always comes to fulfillment. It, it does so in a negative sense, in judgment, and it does so in a positive sense. As his promises are really all we have to depend on. And if you're like me, maybe your sense of security because of the way things are going now is being challenged a bit. And we need an anchor. I love that new song we were introduced to this morning. We need an anchor that holds, and we need a ballast. If you've ever studied sailboats, at the bottom of them they have what's called a keel. And at the bottom of the keel they have something called the keel bulb. That's a weight. There was a man uh, who was going to, he was involved in a 24, was it a 2,400 mile, 24,000 mile race. Uh, he was crossing um, some major oceans. He experienced problems. 
He was an accomplished sailboater. His name was Michael Plant. And the last message he sent to shore was, tell my fiance not to worry. They went out and they tried to find his boat. When they found it, it had been tipped upside down. The keel was sticking straight up, but the keel bulb, that weight that's meant to balance the boat was gone. And whenever it's gone, they don't know how it was broken off. They even postulated maybe a whale did it. But once it was gone, that boat could not stay stable on the water. It flipped right upside down. Because a sailboat has to have more weight below the water line than it does above the water line. And that keel bulb serves to keep the boat from being tipped over when the waves hit it. And when all the storms come, it's what keeps it upright. See, this is what the Word of God does for us. It stabilizes us. And when those waves come, like in that song this morning, when that wave of death hits us, we don't have to be upset. We don't have to be knocked over because God's Word is true and it is our anchor. And the very Word of God, Christ Himself, is who stabilizes us. So we could trust the faithful Word of God and His promises. So as God has promised, His judgment has come. And then we see that God's presence is gone. So secondly, God judges through abandonment. He judges through abandonment. And this is a tough one. Look at verses 19 through 22. Uh, we see that God's presence departs from Israel. So Eli and his sons are now all dead. The word comes to his daughter-in-law. This has happened. She was pregnant. She was about to give birth. But the news came to her, not about, and it wasn't about her father-in-law that died. It was not about her husband who was dead. But the news came to her about the ark. If that gives you any sense of the gravity of what the ark meant to the lives of the Israelites, it should be this. She dies in childbirth. She names her child Ichabod, which literally means no glory. And then in 1 Samuel 4.22, she says, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. So this is a big deal. This ark was a visible sign of God's presence. And those wings that are crossing that chest of gold was said to be the very throne of God. Now, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but my first introduction to the ark was whenever I sit down to watch Raiders of the Lost Ark in a movie theater and you see the ark and it's getting lower. That's not a great description of the ark. It was, whenever it was outside of the temple, it was draped with blankets because if you came into direct eye contact with those wings of the cherubim the throne of god you would die instantly so punishment from god is not so much like this stern father waiting to zap you but it's more like the absence of a loving and present father one of the worst attributes of hell itself will be the absence of God there. Uh, in 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, verses 7 to 9, uh, it states, And to grant relief to you, this is Paul talking to this church in Thessalonica, he says, And to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction 
away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. It's not easy to get our minds around the presence of a place called hell. I heard one pastor say it does not appeal to man's sensibilities to think of a place in the absence of God with eternal suffering. And to struggle with this is pretty natural. I think the best of Christians struggle with hell and this kind of judgment. As a matter of fact, the movie Luther, if you've seen it, there's a very honest conversation that Martin Luther has, uh, this sort of hero of the Reformation, with an older priest. He struggled very much with the concept of God's judgment. As a matter of fact, he in many ways lived in terror of it. And he has this honest conversation uh, with a priest. And in that movie, uh, he, it, it says that he was a frustrated monk who eventually the light of the, the fire of the spiritual reform in Europe uh, would, would, bring, would spring out of him. But he struggles with his, his fear of a God who knows his sinfulness. Then an older priest is passing by his room, and he hears what Martin Luther is praying. And he enters in. And Luther says, I live in terror of judgment. The priest replies, and you think self-hatred will save you. Luther says, have you ever dared to think, I'm sorry, the priest says, no, it's Luther. Have you ever dared to think that God is not just, asked Luther. He has us born tainted by sin, that he's angry with us all our lives for our faults. This righteous judge who damns us, threatening us with fires of hell. He said, I know. He said, I know I'm evil to think it. You're not evil, you're just honest, says the priest. God isn't angry with you, you're angry with God. Luther says, I wish there were no God. <clears throat> the priest says, Martin, what is it you seek? He says, a merciful God, a God whom I can love, a God who loves me. The older priest responds, then look to Christ. Bind yourself to Christ, and you will know God's love. Say to him, I'm yours, save me. I'm yours, save me. Luther responds, clutching a cross in his hand, I am yours, save me. I am yours, save me. If you are saved, you will never know the absence of God. He will never leave you, and he will never forsake you. If you are unsure as to whether or not you are saved, every Sunday I'm right down here in front of the platform, please come and talk to me. I can show you what the scriptures say about what it means to be saved and to never know what the absence of God is. So then how do I look positively at God's judgment? I want to talk about four positive effects in our lives when it comes to God's judgment. It'll either affect us now or it's going to affect us in the future. And first of all, we see that it satisfies our need for judgment. It satisfies our need for judgment. The human being was created with a desire for justice. It's in you. Actually, saved or unsaved, you were created as being made in the image of God with a desire for justice to happen. Uh, as a matter of fact, in the Journal of Psychology, 
uh, an article recently appeared that talks about this, and it begins stating, it is a truism that justice is preeminently a matter of significance for everyone, no matter their current stage in the life cycle, social circumstances, or nationality. It assures personal and communal security and is manifest in the way countries deal with crime, civil conflict, and social strife within their borders or by agreement beyond. You know, we all know this. Uh, we know that no culture or society will continue if there's not a sense of justice being provided. This is what causes places to crumble. We all need this. This should be evidence of the existence of God, by the way. And, you know, we can also learn a lot about ourselves by the movies that we watch, by what entertains us, by books that we know are true. Because, see, movies like The Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, Star Wars, uh, most Westerns, these movies don't work unless there's a deep need for justice that people can feel while they're watching it. You want Darth Vader to be destroyed. You want the Emperor to be destroyed. You want Sauron to be destroyed. You want Voldemort to be destroyed. You know it. You want the bad guy to get what's coming to him, and it's right. Because we have an innate sense of justice. Movies don't work if people weren't built with this. There would be no blockbuster movies if people didn't have that deep need to see justice satisfied. So admit it or not, we want this judgment to happen. It satisfies a need that we are made with. There's good, there's evil, there are universal truths. Some will try to make the claim that's not true and it never works. Just steal something from them. And they'll realize it very quickly. See, the universe is fair because God is in control of the universe. In Colossians 3.25, Paul talks about this. He's telling slaves that no matter how wicked your master is to be submissive to them, both they and we are assured in Colossians 3.25, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Nobody is getting away with anything. And then secondly, God's judgment enables forgiveness. God's judgment enables forgiveness. We can leave justice and judgment in the hands of God, and the scriptures couldn't be any more clear on this. Romans 12, 19. Uh, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Someone is going to pay for sin that has been committed. And if someone doesn't trust in Christ to have paid for their sins, they're going to have to pay for their sins themselves. I like the way Wayne Grudem actually states this in his theology. He says, whenever we have been wronged, we can give it into God's hands. Any desire to harm or pay back the person who has wronged us, knowing that every wrong in the universe will ultimately be paid for, either it will turn out to have been paid for by Christ when he died on the cross, if the wrongdoer becomes a Christian, or it will be paid for at the final judgment for those who do not trust in Christ for salvation. You know, some of you have undergone abuses that you are still feeling right in this very moment. 
and you have been wronged in ways that you are feeling right now. It's true of most all of us on some level. You can still trust God to handle that person rightly. This is why we don't have to punish people. This is why, this is why by the way, we don't have to give our spouse the silent treatment when they make us upset. Because God takes care of the punishing. We don't have to do it ourselves. And then third, it motivates us to righteous living. It motivates us to righteous living. I want to be clear that um, righteous living is not a means to earn forgiveness. We have the opportunity right now to live in such a way as to gain more heavenly reward. Uh, this is a theme that goes through the New Testament, but anytime we bring that up, anytime I start thinking about it, it, we don't want to think of this as meaning that, well, man, I'm going to have less joy when I get to heaven because, you know, I'm going to see what you all are getting. You know, we're going to get to heaven. I'm going to see the mansions you all get, and I'm going to be handed a Twix bar, and I'll be like, well, this stinks. No, it doesn't work like that. You see, when you see other people getting what they deserve, you're going to be just as joyous. It's seeing God's perfect judgment enacted. That's what this is speaking to. It's not like you're going to be disappointed because everybody's going to get what they truly deserve. And I think when we get to heaven, you know, it's tough to find any kind of an earthly experience that even begins to hint at what heaven's going to be like. But I heard this story of this one guy. His name is Moses B. Talk. In, in October of 2005, Moses celebrated an experience. He'd waited a lifetime for this. He became a U.S. citizen. Now, that alone was going to be enough to give a native Kenyan the happiest day of his life. But that was just going to be a prelude of what was to come. Because on the way home, this was in Des Moines, Iowa, on the way home from the federal building, he'd just gotten a citizenship, he stopped at a gas station to see the winning numbers in the Iowa State Hot Lotto game. And he was surprised to find out he had won $1.8 million. And he said, it's almost like you adopted a new country and then they netted you $1.8 million. It doesn't happen anywhere, I guess only in America. In the same way, when we get new life in Christ, when we get new citizenship in heaven, we have an experience that this doesn't even compare to. We will also get heavenly rewards, so it should motivate us to live rightly now. Do it while we have the chance. In the short amount of time that we have on earth, we're determining what eternity is going to be like. And then finally, God's judgment should spur evangelism. It should spur evangelism. In 2 Peter 3, 9, we're reminded, the Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but it is patient toward you, not wishing for anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance. This is the heart of God, that He wants more to come to repentance. And if you've not yet trusted Christ as your Savior, if you're unsure of what that means, again, I'm asking you, don't let today just pass by. Come and talk to me. Like Gary said, he and I will both be down here at the front of the church we want to pray with you for whatever may be troubling you, but 
I mean, what a day it is that we get to lead someone and show them what the scriptures say about how to get to heaven. If you love someone, share the gospel with that person. God's judgment is coming, and those who are not in Christ will have to pay for their own sins. Let it spur you to evangelism. So putting all this together, let God's judgment inspire you to godly living. Let God's judgment inspire you to godly living. I want to close with this story from a man. Uh, his name is Miroslav Volf. He's a Christian theologian. He's from Croatia. And he used to reject the concept of God's wrath. He just couldn't get his mind around it. He thought it was, the idea of an angry God was barbaric and completely unworthy of a God of love. But then he had an experience. His country experienced a brutal war. People committed terrible atrocities against their neighbors and countrymen. And he reflected on this. It's actually a book he wrote called Free of Charge. And he started understanding even the necessity of God's wrath. And he said, my last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed, over 3 million displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out, some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry about this. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century, where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to that kind of carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in kind of a grandfatherly fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrator's basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? He said, though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. Please pray with me. Almighty God, even though at times it's hard to understand your judgment, we could not have your love if you were not also a righteous judge. Lord, we stand in front of you only because of the blood of Jesus Christ. It's only because of his obedience to the cross, because of his death that he paid the penalty for sin. And Lord, I'm praying for anyone in here right now who has not yet put their faith in the saving blood of Jesus Christ that today would be the day that they would not leave this auditorium without coming and talking to Gary or myself or one of the elders about what it means to have new life in Christ. Not only do we get eternity, but we get the remainder of our life walking with you, knowing what true joy is, knowing what peace is, knowing that even in the face of death, we have a ballast that will hold us up so that those waves crashing against us won't knock us over. Lord, I pray that we would lean into the faithfulness of your word, that it would be an anchor that holds us no matter what storms in life may come. We thank you for your truth. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. To him who loves us,
and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Please feel free to come down and pray with us today. Have a wonderful Sunday, and you're dismissed.